Well, let's take our Bibles and go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11 today. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and ask that you would, in your grace, help us to grasp your word this morning and that you would, you would empower us to, to obey it. Lord, what a, what a great and awesome calling it is to be your people, to have been redeemed by your sacrifice on the cross, to be called to new life. And Lord, we, we present ourselves this morning to the truth. It is your word that works in us. It is your word that sits over us, not us over your word. In your name we pray, amen. As the people of God, we are future-oriented people. We have been justified, that is, we have been brought into a right relationship with God. We have been united with Christ in his suffering and his death in his resurrection, and so have already been delivered out of slavery to sin and a destiny of judgment. We are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ and are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Given all of this, we live then in this time of expectation of a future salvation, of a future glory, a final glory. So we live in this age, but we belong to the age to come. And it is God's promise of glory that sustains us in this age. According to Romans chapter 5, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is our confidence in this life. That because of God's grace in which we now stand, we can bank on, we can have confidence in his promise of glory. According to Romans chapter 8, where Paul really opens up and explains glory, the reception of the promises of glory. Romans chapter 8 says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Another way of saying that we are future-oriented 
is to say that we are people of promise. We are people of promise. Our lives revolve around promises. What God has said he will do. And this is the way it has always been. God's people have always lived according to promises. This was true in the Old Testament as well as it is in the New Testament. God's people in the Old Testament were always directed forward. A Savior will come. A son will be given. His name will be. God will deliver you. With that promise then fulfilled in the coming of Christ, in the death of Christ, and the ascension of Christ, we are now pointed forward. Jesus will return. He will deliver you. He will finish the work that he has begun. It is why God's people in every age are called to live by faith. And why according to Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. If you read in Hebrews, the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, what we affectionately call the hall of faith, you will see that scripture's point in every example is that each of the saints of old pleased God by believing his promises for the future and living a certain way in light of those promises, even though every one of them died never seeing the fulfillment of the promise that was made. They believed God. We, too, live by faith in God's promises. As Paul concludes these exhortations here that he began in chapter 12, verse 1, and then especially in chapter 12, verse 9, he makes it clear that the fulfillment of God's promises to us is not something far away. These promises and their fulfillment are not remote. They are close. They are always imminent. You could put it this way. Our salvation is always about to happen. It is always about to happen. Our salvation is near. And so the scriptures give us here then a needed reminder and the needed response or the needed resolve. First of all, the needed reminder, verse 11 this first part of verse 11 should read, and do this knowing the time. Do this knowing the time. In other words, live out all of these instructions from chapter 12, verse 9, through chapter 13, verse 10. Do all of this dominated by a love that is genuine. A genuine love that abhors evil and holds fast good. Because you know the time you know the time. The time is a term that often means opportunity, something to take advantage of. We might use the word situation. You know the situation that you're in. Now, I realize that many of you are football fans, and of course, others of you are not so much football fans, and you might or might not necessarily know the sport so well. 
But in the sport of football, there is a well-known concept called the two-minute drill. A two-minute drill is a special set of plays that are designed for a certain set of players, personnel on the field, that are designed for the final two minutes of a football game when the score is close and the game is at stake. Football teams will practice and hone their two-minute drills. And when that clock hits two minutes, they know what they have to do. They will often not even huddle. They won't even plan a play. They already have a sequence of plays. They will call it at the line of scrimmage, and they'll just run play after play after play because there's not a a lot of time left. They practice and hone this because that situation is so crucial for their success. When Paul says, you know the time, he means you understand the situation. This is the two-minute drill, and the game is on the line. That's what he means. You are to live every day of your life like a spiritual two-minute drill. You know the situation, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. You have to remember in the first century AD, they did not have light bulbs. They didn't have artificial light, which is a big difference between our day and their day. Torches and fires could be lit and provide some light at night, but in the first century, people basically rose with the sun and went to bed with the sun. And so, productive life, work, learning, traveling, all of those kinds of things took place during daylight. Nighttime was for sleeping or thievery or murder or drunkenness, sexual immorality, what we would call the nightlife. Or partying. So a person who is sleeping past dawn into the day was either lazy, negligent, or sleeping off the nightlife. When Paul says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, he is saying the situation of history not just your life, but the situation of the ages, the passing of this age into the next age demands that we be alert, not lethargic, not apathetic, that we forsake any behavior that would incapacitate us from expecting Christ now. To sleep is to be conformed to this world or this age. Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul is actually restating that. To be asleep when the sun is rising, when the dawn is breaking, and it has already, is to be conformed to this age. Why? 
Why wake up? Why not sleep? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is completed salvation. This is the final deliverance that finishes the work of salvation that has already begun. You have already been delivered from the penalty of sin. You have really already been delivered from the power of sin, even if you are working out that freedom. And one day you will be completely delivered from the presence of sin when God raises you from the dead and transforms you, glorifies you completely and finally. That's the salvation Paul's talking about. He's talking about the completed package of what God has promised. The salvation that we are waiting for is our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 13. That's what we're waiting for. That this final salvation is nearer to us now highlights, first of all, that it is always imminent. Again, it could happen any day. It could take place any moment. Secondly, for us to be nearer to that salvation now highlights the fact that there is a fixed time for this event to happen. Jesus' return is not tentatively scheduled by God the Father. It is fixed, and we are moving toward it. And so we are moving toward an event that is fixed by God's sovereign power, even if he hasn't revealed to us when it will take place. Therefore, every day that passes, every hour that passes brings it nearer. That's what Paul's saying. It is nearer now. Every day you wake up, you can say, it is nearer now. Every hour that you suffer, you can say, it is nearer now. It's closer. After all, because our salvation is imminent, because it is fixed and approaching, we must wake from sleep. We must be alert and ready, which means abandoning the night. It means living lives that expect Jesus now. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Okay, this is a, a loaded metaphor. This is a loaded picture. Night is not just evil. It includes that, but it's not just evil. Day is not just righteousness. The night is the age, the age of sin and rebellion where they hold dominion. This is the age in which we live. The day is the age that began when Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. That was the turning of an age. And that was its dawn, the dawn of this new age in which we live. 
The daylight is growing as this age passes, and the new age of Christ's dominion ascends. You already belong to Christ's kingdom. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You don't have one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other. You have already been transferred. That is the Bible's perspective. But how can Paul say that the night is far gone? By which it means, the word means advanced. It's far advanced. He can say it because the end has already been set in motion, right? It's already been set in motion. So the night passing, the night is far advanced. The day is already at hand. But there's more. Because the day refers not only to righteousness. It not only refers to an age, a kingdom, a dominion of righteousness. But it refers to an event the event that in the full presence of Christ's dominion takes place. It's what ushers it in. It is the event the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. This is described in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and following. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if that sounds familiar, it is probably, it might be because you've read the prophet Joel. It might be because you remember Acts chapter 2 because this is a passage, these verses, the apostle Peter appeals to to help the crowds, the multitudes, understand what's going on in front of them. As the apostles speak in tongues and begin to proclaim the gospel, and uh, uh, there's a sound of a rushing wind, and there are little flames over their heads, and Peter is standing on the temple mount, and he is proclaiming the gospel, and that they have crucified the Messiah that God had promised And when they're asking what's going on, Peter points to this passage in Joel chapter 2. What he was saying is that that age is now started. It is beginning. It is beginning a fulfillment. And it is heading toward its end. There's another, there are several, but there's another brief Reference I want to bring up, and it's found in the book of Obadiah. Remember that book? It's like one page tucked into your minor prophets. But the prophet Obadiah writes, For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. So the day of the Lord is not just an individual judgment. It is a day in which the Lord will call the nations before him. 
and judge them. And by the nations, he doesn't just mean people of different ethnicities. He means the nations in their entireties and their governments. He will judge them all. The New Testament also calls this event the Day of the Lord, as well as the Day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Day of our Lord, the day of our Lord Jesus, the day of Christ, calls it the day of redemption, calls it the evil day, meaning the day of calamity. Even in Romans already, Paul has described it as the day of wrath in chapter 2, verse 5, and the day when God judges in chapter 2, verse 16. So the day of the Lord is the reckoning The day is the judgment. Paul is giving us an urgent reminder. Our salvation is near. This is the time. This is the hour in which we live. This was close to Paul's heart. He said these kinds of things often. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 He writes, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. That day is the day of Jesus' return. It is the day of judgment. And he says it will come like a thief in the night. We know that picture well. Meaning that suddenly, unexpectedly. But he's saying you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief, you ought to be ready. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We already belong to the light. This is our reminder then. Our salvation is near. But the reminder needs resolve. And this is the needed resolve then, verse 12. So then... So then, the reminder aims at a response. Because the day is at hand, because our salvation is near, Paul calls for transformed living with three pairs of contrasting commands. The first one is, cast off the works of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. The word armor is literally weapons or weaponry, I think is the best way here to to understand it, weaponry of light. The idea is not just protection against attack, but being equipped for full combat. An essential part of waking from sleep is realizing that you are at war. This is warfare, spiritual warfare. And your equipment includes not only armor to protect you, but weapons for driving back darkness. For extending the kingdom. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. That's not just the same thing as saying that our enemy is not flesh and blood like in Ephesians 6. What Paul is saying is that our entire methodology is counter the world. It is counter-cultural. 
We don't wage war according to the flesh with human reasoning, with human standards. No, the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And he didn't just mean the apostles. He means believers. He means in how we preach the gospel, how we share the gospel, how we live is weaponry that destroys strongholds. By the way, this word Weapons in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 is the same word as armor in Romans 13 verse 12. It's this weaponry. To put on the weaponry of light is to equip yourself. That's what he means when he says put on. It is to equip yourself. Take up the spiritual resources that God has provided for guarding against temptation for driving back darkness. A soldier doesn't wear his combat fatigues and his uniform along with his shirt and tie, his civilian clothing. He doesn't wear into battle the same clothes that he wears to the grocery store. So to put on the armor of light, you must cast off the works of darkness. You can't have them both on. That's the contrast. That's the trade-off. The weaponry of light guards against temptation, and it drives back darkness. Secondly, verse 13, Paul uses this walking imagery. Walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Walking is this common image of routine behavior. We might say living. We might call it a lifestyle. Your lifestyle, your behavior, your moral pursuits, your priorities in life should match the daytime. They should match the daytime. They should match the coming age to which you belong, which is defined by light, not darkness, which is the time for all of these immoral pursuits, darkness. It's the time for all these pursuits that Paul lists in verse 13. And most of these we would expect to be listed here, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. But what about quarreling and jealousy? They almost seem kind of out of place for this list. In what way does quarreling and jealousy belong to the nightlife, the darkness? But you see, I think Paul is preparing us for chapter 14, where he's going to confront and speak about some specific points of division in the church in Rome over matters of conscience and backgrounds. And so he, Paul is making the point that quarreling and jealousy belong to the age of night that is passing away just as much as sexual immorality. So these then are the works of darkness that we are to cast off, putting on the weaponry of light 
equips us to walk according to the day, that has already begun. But you can see that there are certain things that God has done. There's an identity we already have, and yet we have to respond, right? There must be resolve on our part. Thirdly, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So there is this put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's drawing a parallel with putting on the weaponry of light because Christ is God's provision for us. He is God's provision for us. He is God's provision for us during this brief time between the crack of dawn and the full rising of the day. He is with us. He sustains us. He guards us. And he drives back darkness. But putting on Christ also means making no provision for the flesh. The flesh here is this part of you that is still susceptible to temptation because you're not yet glorified. Don't make provision for it. Don't dabble in it. We tend to ask the question, how far can I go before I cross a line? When the real matter is, we should not even be getting so close to it that we would ever provide any kind of ground for it. Don't put yourself in the way of temptation. Don't pursue its desires. Don't be ensnared by the lie that it will satisfy. Don't be enslaved to the lie that it doesn't matter or that you don't have the power to overcome it. God has provided everything you need. To put on Christ is to appropriate his power and grace. To put on Christ is to identify with him fully, to love him, to embrace his promises. That is putting on Christ. Saying, put on Christ, put everything else off. The return of Christ and our final salvation is the great hope of the New Testament. And listen, it is the next great event in the unfolding plan of God. Understand that? There isn't anything else to happen. Everything else that we are waiting for, that is prophesied in the New Testament, that is promised to us, this is the next thing. This is the next thing. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus says to John, the glorified Jesus, the one that terrifies John, he says, behold, I am coming soon. When he says soon, he doesn't mean like, okay, what is that, five minutes, is that an hour? He means the next thing to happen is I will come. And as he walks among the lampstands, evaluating his churches, each church has a lampstand. And he's saying, 
I am the one. I am the Lord of the churches. I am the one. And John describes him, right? His, his tongue is a sword. He's feet of bronze and white and purity and blinding terror. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. What is about to take place, that's what he says to John. I'm about to show you what is about to take place. What Jesus means is that all of this is next. There's nothing left to do until this happens. And every generation of Christians is in the two-minute drill until he arrives. That's the way we're to live life. We are to live with this promise at the center of our thinking. And you know, it's interesting. You read what Paul says here about casting off the works of darkness, walking properly, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You would think that that's something that as Christians we do when we come to Christ, when we're converted But Paul is calling for it to be something that we do over and over and over again. That's why it takes resolve. Because these are things we must wake up to. That we must always be casting off. We are to live with this promise at the center of our thinking. Really, all of the New Testament takes up this theme, and I'll close with the words of the Apostle Peter in chapter 1, verse 13 of his first epistle, where he says something so very similar. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are a future-oriented people because your promises stand at the center of our hope and faith. And it is because we believe you that we have confidence that you will finish the work you've begun, that you will bring all things to completion. Lord, will you empower us, enable us to be an eternally minded people who are able to step back out of the sufferings of this life and the threats of this life and the fears of this life and the goods of this life, the ease of this life, the comforts of this life, and see the big picture For you have already fixed a day for the Lord's return. And Lord Jesus, we long for that return. Lord, forgive us for becoming so filled with the the good stuff of this life and the world that we never ache for eternity until we find ourselves in some great trial. But Lord, for that reason, we give you thanks for the the trials, the difficulties, because they remind us that this brokenness and this aching and powerlessness that we feel will only be resolved on that last day. 
these hardships that we face keep us from being gluttoned at the table of the world. So Lord, guard us. Lord, equip us not only to resist temptation, but to drive back the darkness while there is time, while the opportunity is here. In your name we ask these things. Amen.